Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so last week, we started off talking a little bit about the Bible reading plan that we've been going through. And I gave you three steps that hopefully will help you on your journey of reading the Bible um, uh, on a regular basis. And those three steps were, if you remember, to um, as, uh, when you read a section of scripture in your daily Bible reading, every now and then pause, summarize the story, summarize the larger story, and then summarize what is required of you. What is this text saying? What is this text in the context of the larger story of the Bible? And then more specifically, what does this text have to say to me? What is it requiring and what is it speaking to me? Now this approach is helpful in reading the Bible as a whole, but it's, it's particularly helpful in reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four books that we have in the New Testament that are referred to as the Gospels. They tell the story of Jesus, the good news. And this approach is helpful in studying the Gospels. Luke is a Gospel, and that's why we're talking about it today. The approach uh, in using, well, using this approach uh, in the Gospels is really helpful for uh, the three steps because number one, the story is super plain to see. It's easy because the Gospels are written as a narrative story. So as you read them, it's just like someone telling you the story of what Jesus experienced. Here's what he said, here's what he did, here's where he went. It's a story, and so as you're reading through Luke, it's easy to summarize the story because it's told to you in a story format. It's a little more difficult when you get to Psalms or Proverbs to summarize the story sometimes because it's poetry, but that's not the case in the Gospels. In the Gospels, it is given to us in story format, and so it's easy to summarize the story. The second step is to summarize the larger story. Now, we talked last week on how summarizing the larger story can look like Old Testament callbacks, okay? So when we're reading the story, and you're reading your Bible, and you, you summarize the story, and now you get to a place where, okay, I wanna summarize the larger story. Well, what, what is the larger story? How does it fit into the larger context? Well, sometimes that draws you back to Moses. Sometimes it draws you back to the book of Judges. Sometimes it draws you back to 1 Samuel and to Kings. And you start getting an understanding of how this story is connected to the larger context. But that's not the only way for us to look at the larger story. And that's kind of what I want to explore today. Another way to look at the larger story is to look at the deeper lessons within the story. Okay, so, and this is why it's super helpful when you're going through uh, the Gospels, because the Gospels are in story format. And when you summarize the story, the next step is not necessarily to see how that story fits into the larger context, but to actually dive even deeper into that story that you just summarized. You following where I'm going? So the, so the first step would be summarize the story of what you just read, but the second step is rather than summarize the larger story in the context of the Old Testament and callbacks, but summarize the larger story identifying the, the hidden meaning or the secret or the mystery. Now I use the word mystery because the New Testament uses the word mystery regularly. The word mystery in Greek is mysterion, and it's used 27 times in New Testament. 
We'll come across it when we get to Luke chapter eight, when Jesus tells the disciples, hey, look, to you, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been given, but to these other people, I have to communicate it to them in parables. So Jesus is saying that within the parable or the stories we're gonna be reading in Luke, there is a mystery that is found within those. There is a larger story at work. So the parable has a larger story. Now this isn't kind of new to us. I think we kind of understand it, but in order to be aware of it as we're going through reading, I think is a powerful tool to help us as we're going through Luke. And then the last step of this is summarizing what is required. And this is interesting when you go through the Gospels. Because as you're going through the Gospels, one of the things that you'll notice is that Jesus is constantly speaking straight to the disciples. These 12 guys. He's saying these specific things to them. But even though he's speaking to them, he's also speaking for us. He's directing what he's saying to disciples, but because you, everyone in this room, followers of Jesus, are also disciples, he's also speaking for you to listen. So here's how we're gonna go through um, uh, Luke 5 today, but also how you can use this as a way to help you with your Bible readings. We're gonna summarize the story And then we're gonna summarize the larger story by exploring the mystery or the secret or the hidden meaning. And then we're gonna look at what Jesus required of his disciples and what that requires of us. Amen? All right, so that's where we're going. Kind of laid all the cards out on the table. That's all there is. All right, there's no other hidden mystery. That's just it. Um, So if you're looking for like a a prestige or a a twist of something at the end, there, there is none. This is it. We're just gonna do this the whole time. But if you really narrow this down and you understand how this works, as you go through the Gospels, you're gonna be enriched in ways that you hadn't really anticipated. Amen? Let's get into it. Luke chapter five, we're gonna start in verse one. So he starts off and he says, Luke writes, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. Now, Gennesaret is a, um, a local way of saying Galilee. Excuse me. Um, it's kind of like how um, Lake Jackson, that lake that's just kind of south, uh, uh, I guess that would be like just southwest of us. Um, it's, it's also referred to as that big old sinkhole, <laughs> colloquially. Um, but it's Lake Jackson, that's how it is. It's often referred to as Lake Gennesaret, all right? So Lake Galilee. So he's around the lake and he's doing ministry and he's preaching and he sees two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. They were getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and to help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. 
But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon and with Jesus. Excuse me, and Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. All right, so let's summarize the story real quick. What is the story that we just read? Well, the story is pretty simple. Jesus was teaching near Galilee. He's walking around the lake. He comes up on two fishing boats that had no fish in them. And while he's there, he's seeing that these fishermen who've been fishing all night are out now cleaning their nets. Because what happens is when you go out and you cast these nets and you're trying to scoop up the fish and you're not actually getting fish, you're getting the stuff on the bottom of the lake. And so now you've got to wash your nets out. And so Jesus comes up and he sees that these guys are doing this. So Jesus, what he does is he gets into one of the boats and he pushes it out a little bit from, from shore for the purpose of amplification because the way that the lake is set, if you're out on the lake, um, the lake is kind of like this, and then there's mountains that go up surrounding it. So if you kind of push yourself out from shore, there's this natural amphitheater that is created. And as Jesus is just talking in his normal voice, it's echoing up on the hill, and people way up on the top of the hill can hear you speak very clearly. So he stands there and he teaches for a little bit, and when he finishes and closes his message, he turns to the fishermen and he asks them, push your boat out a little bit farther and drop your net. Now what's happening here, it's kind of easy to miss, but what's happening here is a teacher of the law is telling a fisherman how to do his job. All right, now I don't know how many times you've ever been in a situation where somebody came into your place of business and told you how to do your job, but I've never met anybody that likes that. It's a little annoying. But Peter, Rather than demonstrate frustration and annoyance, what he does is he responds to Jesus with faith. All right. He doesn't say, look, I know what I'm doing and we've been out here all night um, and so we're not gonna catch anything. I I know where the fish are. This is my area of expertise. So whatever you're gonna tell me is not gonna work. No, he says, all right, I'm gonna do it. And the moment he does this, he brings in so many fish that it almost sinks two boats. Now, on the surface, this story is about a miracle. The miracle is about an increase for these fishermen because, well, they're bringing in this fish now and then they're gonna sell the fish. And so this is literally Christ blessing these men, maybe for letting him use their boat. But on the surface, it kind of looks like a thank you. I'm gonna bless your work. I'm gonna bless your family. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna bless you because I'm God and I do what I want and I love you. That's on the surface. But let's summarize the larger story, not in the larger story as the whole Bible context like we talked about last week, but let's summarize the mystery or the secret or the hidden meaning inside of this. The hidden meaning from this story is that the fish isn't what it's about. There is something deeper here than God just blessing the family. What he's doing with this miracle is he's communicating something very profound about the kingdom of God. 
This isn't about fish and it's not about a miracle. It's about God getting the glory. And that's something that we miss often about miracles. We want desperately God to do something on our behalf because we just want this mountain in front of us moved, but we're not interested in his son getting the glory for the mountain being moved. And so often the prayer gets answered with a no. Because God's ultimate desire here is to put his son on broadcast so that everyone sees, not just to fix your body, because ultimately your body will be fixed. The trajectory you're on as you follow God is that one day you will come into glory and your body will be made whole. That's already done. But if God in his mercy gives a foreshadow of that here on this side, the only reason why he would do that is to make much of Jesus. That's why he does that. And so the reason why Jesus is blessing Peter here is because he's trying to make a profound impact on the people who just watched the lesson and are watching this exchange, but also on Peter and these men he's about to call as disciples. He's trying to communicate that the fish are the lost people and the net is the kingdom of God, catching up the entire world. The fact that it doesn't matter what you do, you're gonna be caught up in God's kingdom some of you for salvation, and some of you for eternal punishment. But it doesn't matter what you do, you can't escape the net of God. It's capturing everything in that lake. This is about God showing the disciples that he wants helpers to come and throw the net out. There's so many mysterious layers to this simple miracle that it kind of blows your mind when you sit and think about it. The mystery of this story is what Jesus is asking these men to do. Now we get to the section of asking, what is he asking these men to do? What is required of these men? Now he's speaking directly to the disciples here, but as we said previously, it's not just to the disciples, it's also for us. So what is Jesus requiring of these disciples and what is he requiring of us? The first, well, if we look at the story, what was Peter's response? The moment that they pulled up all these fish, Peter fell down on his knees saying, depart from me, I'm a sinful man, O Lord. What is required of you, first and foremost, is to realize how insufficient you are and how badly you need Jesus. It doesn't matter how experienced you are as a fisherman or whatever trade you're talking about. When it comes to your business, if you don't have Christ, you're in trouble. Now you could say, well, you know, I'm a secularist, I don't don't need Jesus. You hear the world proclaiming this, I'm doing pretty good on my own. I would argue that that is the curse on your life. That's not a blessing. So I don't know, drive this pretty sweet car, it looks like a blessing to me. God in his mercy has a way of giving you exactly what it is that you want as a form of judgment. And so the very blessing that you say, well, I did this on my own, I worked hard for this, I, I did this. I don't need God, I did this on my own. God says, all right, well, I'm gonna let you keep on enjoying that doing it on your own. And we're gonna see where it gets you. See, that's the funny thing about identifying earthly things as blessing. 
they can also be used in God's hand as a curse. And if you don't have wisdom, you can't tell the difference. And so what you're seeing here is a realization of how insufficient these fishermen were. It doesn't matter that you stayed up all night. It doesn't matter how hard you worked. It doesn't matter how good you are at casting the dead. It doesn't matter how many times you fish this lake and you know what time the fish are out and you know where they are. It doesn't matter that you know that 90% of the fish are in 10% of the lake. None of that matters. If his hand is against you, you're not catching anything. And if his hand is against you, all you might catch is more and more of what you don't need. What's required of us is a realization of how insufficient we are, but also what's required of us is a falling to our knees in reverence and awe over his greatness and our sin, which is, it's missing in the gospel presentation very often today. What's presented is this, man, just, just come as you are, man. It's, it's this, I see, I've seen this so many times on churches, and I'm not, not trying to knock any specific church in this town if they have it, because I, I don't know what their slogans are, but you've heard this over and over, the idea like, it's okay to not be okay. What? That's not the gospel presentation. The gospel presentation is come and die forsake everything, leave. That's the requirement when Jesus looks at these disciples and, the, and, and Peter's falling on his knees. He said, I'm a sinful man. Jesus looks at him and says, don't be afraid. I'm gonna make something out of you. And it's not a fisherman. It's not something that this world's gonna look at and say, man, you're really good at your job. I'm gonna do something else with you. I'm gonna make something of you. I'm gonna change you. No, it's not not okay that you stay the way that you are. I want more for you. I want you to be transformed. And so here's what I want you to do. I want you to leave it all behind. Forsake it. Turn and follow me. It's what was required of the disciples, and it's still what is required of us today. And if you're sitting in here and you're holding on to a fishing net that you grew up with, and it's your identity, and you like smelling like fish. You hear what I'm saying? You, this, this is your thing, man. It's what everybody knows you by. And you can't seem to make any headway with Jesus because all you're doing is dragging around this nasty old fishing net. Today's the perfect day to let go and follow him. Let's continue. Luke chapter five, verse 12. So while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. I think we're pretty much all familiar with leprosy, right? It's a skin disease. It was a word that described a lot of different kinds of skin diseases, but essentially um, it, was, uh, as, um, uh, it was as light as a rash on your skin, making you unclean, making you unholy, um, to as extreme as like literally parts of your body, ears falling off. Okay, that's, that's the spectrum that everything kind of fell under leprosy. And one of the things in this time period is that you didn't touch lepers, they were unclean. You were worried, like if you touch them, you might get it, so you just steer clear. Verse 12, while Jesus in, was in one of these cities in Galilee, that's uh, up north, northern Israel, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and he begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand 
And he touched him. And he said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but this is what he said, go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. But now even more the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he withdrew to desolate places to pray. Now I want you to just kind of put that there. I want to continue with this other story about God healing a paralytic man. We're going to address both of them together. On one of those same days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village in Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. So now you've got teachers of the law down from around Jerusalem and southern part of Israel traveling to the north just to listen to what Jesus has to say. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. I just want to picture this scene. They're up on the roof, literally dismantling the roof to make a hole large enough to lower their friend who is strapped to this stretcher down in front of Jesus, who is inside this room teaching to everyone. When they saw that, verse 20, and when he saw their faith, this is Jesus, when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees who were sitting around, they began to question saying, who is this? Who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceived their thoughts. That's a dangerous verse, folks. Jesus perceived their thought. Jesus perceives your thoughts. There's nothing hidden. Your thoughts aren't hidden. He knows what you're thinking. He knows your intentions. When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, why do you question in your hearts, which is easier to say? Excuse me, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before all of them, picked up what he had been lying on, and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now what's the story? Jesus is traveling around Galilee. He's healing people's body. He heals a leper and he heals a paralyzed man. And the religious leaders are upset while everyone else who's experiencing the miracles is glorifying God. That's the summary of the story. But what's the larger story? Not the larger story in the context of the whole Bible, but what is the hidden meaning, the secret or the mystery in these two parables or stories? Well, the first, the leper. Jesus heals this person of a skin disease and then tells the person, I want you to go back to the priests and I want you to present yourself 
and follow all of the strict laws of Moses back from Leviticus chapter 14, verses 2 32. I want you to present yourself to the priest. I want you to go through the ceremonial process of you being cleaned. And in obeying the law, Jesus is forcing the priests to affirm his power and divinity. Think about that. Why did Jesus say, go and present yourself to the priest? Because the moment the healed man presents himself to the priest in accordance to the law, what's happening, and this is the mystery wrapped up in this little story, the whole system is set up to testify for Jesus. That's the mystery. That's the hidden secret. When Jesus says, go and present yourself, and they present themselves before the priest, the priest has no choice but to say, yeah, you are healed. Whatever happened to you, whoever did this to you, it's valid. And according to the law, God now declares you clean and holy. Isn't that fascinating? that the entire system that would ultimately be used against Jesus was set up from the moment it was created to testify about him. That there was a provision in the law so that people, when they ultimately got healed of this disease, would be able to present themselves and enter back into society. That's the interesting hidden secret in the leper story, but when we get to the paralytic, it gets even more interesting. Because in this story, the man apparently, according to Jesus, needs his sins forgiven more than he needs to walk. So when he comes in, he presents himself uh, on this stretcher before Jesus, and Jesus marvels at his faith. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. It makes the Pharisees upset, and then Jesus presents this question to them. And the question is this, what is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise up and walk? Now, obviously, we would all say it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because I can say to anybody in here, hey, your sins are forgiven. And there's no way to question that. I don't know if your sins are actually forgiven or not. You can go around saying that all day long. But the mystery, the hidden secret within that proclamation is that Jesus didn't just stop at your sins are forgiven. He went even further and use the healing power of his word to prove that he had the power to forgive. This is how it goes. He says, if you can't see that sins are forgiven, how can you tell? You look at what you can see. The healed body testifies of the healed soul. How do you know that this message of Jesus is true? you look at the evidence of transformed lives of people in church. What is the greatest witness to this unbelieving world that the message of Christ is true? A transformed life. Now look, I'm not against street evangelism, witnessing, and I'm not against you know, doing the whole thing where you, you walk people through, you, know, you ever steal, you ever you know, lied? Oh, so you're a, a lying, stealer, adulterer you know, getting them to the place where they realize that they've broken the law and they need, I, I'm, I'm fine with all of that. But there is nothing 
greater. There is no greater evangelistic tool than a transformed life than somebody who knew you the way you were before Jesus changed you and has met you now and says, I have no, I, 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 I don't have, I don't know what to do with this. I, you were like this and now you're like this. I, I, I don't know how else to describe this. A transformed life. That's that is the hidden secret. That is the larger story behind all of these stories. I say parables because there's a teaching hidden within the story that actually took place. This isn't like an imaginary tale. It wasn't like this is something that actually happened, but within the thing that really happened, there's a story, there's a lesson. And the lesson revolves around a transformed life and what that does as a witness to a non-believing world. And the last question we have to ask ourselves is what does this require of us? Well, I would say that it requires the same thing that the first story required. Complete and total surrender. Now when I say complete and total surrender, what I'm saying is this story in Luke 5 so far is requiring an awareness that you just don't have on your best day the power or the tools or the experience that you need to accomplish what it is that you need to accomplish. These stories are communicating that you are fishless, you are unclean, you are strapped to a stretcher, and your only move is to put your faith in Jesus. And you say, well, I don't know about that. I mean, I'm not really strapped to a stretcher. I can do a couple things. You show me your best day on what you can accomplish, and it pales in comparison to the God who spoke stars into existence with his very mouth. I'm sorry, you're not that good. Like, I don't care how much you've made or, or, or what you can accomplish or who you are in your life, it pales in comparison to a God who simply says, you wanna be healed? You're healed. You want your sins forgiven? They're forgiven. You don't want to be cursed with leprosy anymore? By the sheer mentioning of my word saying you are healed, you don't have that disease anymore. I don't care what talent or experience or how much money you have or how much leverage you have, it doesn't matter. Nothing compares to the power that this man has. And this is the reason why every encounter he has, he's leaving people who are profoundly changed in the sense of awe. What does this require of you? It requires a new posture. It requires a posture that mirrors the posture that you see these guys in the story. A posture that says, look, I don't have any move left. My marriage is completely destroyed. If God doesn't do something tomorrow, I've got no other move. That's the kind of desperation that the scriptures are trying to get you to understand. That that most days you will say, 70%, I'm giving it to the Lord, but but I'm leaning back on this 30 in case something doesn't go my way. I've got plans in place that I can fall back on if this thing with God doesn't work out. 
If I get too into it or I get too, too, too vibrant with it or if I throw myself too far into it or if I go too, too much in one direction of God or, or if I put my faith in this and, that, and then God doesn't really come through, I got a couple backup plans. That is not what is presented to us in Scripture as what people who follow God live like. What is presented to us is people who have no other options and, they, and, and the fact that they have no options, they have, they have no play, it creates inside of them a deep dependency on Jesus for everything that they do. And I just wonder if one of the issues that we have currently in the church culture that we live in is there is not this deep dependency on Christ like we see in Scripture because we are so independent of Christ. And maybe, this, maybe some of it is because we're Americans. Maybe some of it is because we're Americans and we also live in the South. But there is a sense deep down inside of us that like if God doesn't come through in the way that I think he should, I'll be all right. Because I know how to make my own way. Now we don't say it that way, right? We don't pray that way. But what the scripture is pushing on you is to come to the realization that you may not say it that way or pray that way, but you're living that way. That's, that's how you're living. You are ultimately saying, I'm gonna give my whole everything to Jesus, and I'm gonna show up on Sunday, I'm gonna do the normal things, I'm gonna go through the routines, I'm gonna be exactly what he's asked me, except for this one little thing that I like a lot, and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna keep doing it my way. And this can be like physical stuff, like, maybe your truck or your house, but then it can kind of creep into like relationship stuff. This can be like your, 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 your spouse, your marriage, your children. You can get to a place where you literally worship your children more than you worship your God. Their needs always come first. There's no consideration for the way that God may be allowing a little pain and suffering in your life through your children in order to, to to shape and mold them into the way that he wants them to be. What this story is presenting to us is a real honest to goodness poverty of the soul that makes us cry out to Christ. And I just wonder if one of the issues that we see in a lack of awe, a lack of reverence, if it's connected to this idea that we don't really, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really need him. We say we need him, and we, we need him in a couple ways, but, but we don't really need him. If he doesn't show up in this specific situation, that's all right, it's going to be okay. But what would it look like if you lived your life in such a way that you say, look, maybe, maybe you're uh, living in a season of life and you're, and you're single, and you're like, look, I really want to find somebody to marry. What would it look like if you really legitimately just said, I'm just going to leave this up to the Lord? I'm gonna stop trying to make things happen and I'm just gonna let the Lord do what it is that he does and let's see what happens. What would it look like if you did that? What if it, you look, what if it looked as a parent if you stopped trying to helicopter parent your children? All right? And you just trusted, really trusted that your God will protect your children. 
Now, I'm not saying in a foolish way, where it's like, I'm never going to check their phone because I just trust that God's going to. No, that's, that's foolish. That, that's, that's foolish. But what I'm saying is, how do you address that fear in your soul when you drop them off at school and you don't know if that school is going to be the school on the news today because there was a shooting at the school? And you're like, I'm just so paralyzed. Like I, I, and I don't, I'm not, my kid, I'm not going to let him go do this. Not going to let him go do this. And so literally what you're doing is you're not parenting out of trust for God. You're parenting out of fear. What would it look like if we got to a place where you legitimately said, I trust him. Now I'm standing here before you as a man, as a, as a husband, as a father who hasn't gotten this right yet. I say these illustrations because I'm living these illustrations. I'm raising three kids. My daughter turned 18 this week and I am petrified. (laughs) And here's why I'm petrified. Because when my son turned 18, when he went out into the world, my biggest concern was, what is that boy gonna get into? When my daughter turned 18 and started entering into the world, my biggest concern is, what is gonna happen to her? What fool? is gonna follow her out to her car when she leaves the gym. That's what's going through my mind because that's the society that we live in. And we pretend that we're not and uh, we want equality, but it's not. I, I'm, I'm kind of tired of us all just pretending like everything's just equal and everything's fine when it isn't. And we all know it isn't. And it, 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 it brings us to a place where we, we stop feeling the need to protect Women, because we feel like, well, women are like men. They're, they're, they take care of themselves. No, they're not. They need to be protected and looked after and cared for. So this is what I'm saying. As a father who's at that place, my tendency is to do the same thing that you're struggling with. When the question is, can I go here and do this? No, you can't go there and do that. Uh-uh. I don't kind of fools are out there. You'll hit a deer. There's late, it's late at night. You, know, you can't go to a gas station in Tallahassee anymore. Do you hear about the shooting over here? And, and so we're just going to live here in this tiny little home, and no one's ever going to leave. <laughs> Some of you are like, I know, it's not like a bad idea. <laughs> but you just think about, uh, for, for everybody in this room that's 40 and under, think about what your childhood was. When I was a kid, and this is for my sister too, when I was a kid, I told my dad, hey, I'm gonna go play next door. All right, see you at dinner. <laughs> right, every now and then I'd hear him whistle from three blocks over, I'd have to pedal back and check in, but that was it. There was no cell phones. But now I've got my entire family right here and I can know where they are all the time. All of this is, where does this come from? This comes from the world that we're living, living in. It comes from the 24-hour news cycle that tells us, hey, guess what? Another kid down the street got murdered. Another little girl got snatched up. And so it feeds in, oh, this could be you, this could be you. But what it does is it plays against, it paralyzes us, like this man who's getting lowered down in front of Jesus. It puts us in a state where we literally feel like we can't make any decisions because the world is making all the decisions for us. But here's what, and this is what the text is asking us to consider. The idea that what's happening is you are being robbed of your submission to Jesus in his way of doing things. That's what this is about. This isn't about fear. This isn't about what's going to happen to kids. This is about what you are going to trust that your God will do on your behalf. You either trust him or you don't trust him. Let's go to verse 27. 
So after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made a great feast in the house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why, why, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And he said to them, excuse me, they said to him, well, um, the disciples of John, we see them, you fast often, and they offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours, they're at this party just eating and drinking. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? See, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will eat, excuse me, they will fast in those days. And he also then told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment, because if he does, he's going to tear the new garment, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And then he says, verse 39, But no one, after drinking the old wine, desires new, for he says the old is good. Isn't that interesting? Because it seems contradictory to everything he just said. New wine's better, put it in new wineskins. But the people who tasted the old, they don't like the new wine. What is he saying? Well, the story here is that Jesus calls this tax collector named Levi. We find out later in the story that Levi is this same guy named Matthew who writes the Gospel of Matthew. And he calls Levi, Matthew, to follow him. And Levi, in his joy, he leaves everything, throws a party to celebrate, and the religious leaders who are at the party get upset and question the disciples about fasting. But what is the larger story? What is the hidden meaning or the secret or the mystery here? The first part of it is when Jesus speaks about the physician. When Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a doctor, the secret that he's revealing is that no one is well. And that's what, we miss that. We think that when Jesus says, um, I came to, uh, I didn't come for uh, the, 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 uh, there, those who are well have no need of physician. Um, I'm here for the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. We think that there are some among us who are righteous and some among us who are well. And they're the ones who don't need the message of Jesus. But the hidden secret there is when Jesus says, I didn't come to call the righteous, he's saying those who think they are righteous and those who think they are well. I didn't come to call them because they think they're already well, and those who think they are well have no need for the message of Jesus. That's the fascinating thing of what he's saying. It's a slight. He's saying, you think you're well? Well, what you're doing in telling everybody that you're well is broadcasting that you have no need for my message, so I'm not here for you anyway. I'm here for the hungry. I'm here for the ones who are desperate. I'm here for the ones who are sick in their soul and know it. But then he tells this other parable about the old and the new, uh, and uses fabric and wine. The new fabric on old, the, uh, and the new wine and old wine skins. And the issues is it doesn't match. It always tears. If you try to take a new piece of fabric and put it, sew it onto an old garment, the moment you wash it, the new fabric is going to shrink and it's going to tear and you've ruined it. And if you take new wine and put it in old wineskins, the fermenting process is going to expand the already expand to capacity wine uh, skin, and it's going to burst and it's going to ruin everything. And so he's essentially saying, look, old things are old and new things are new. 
and you can't mix them together. But the mystery lies in verse 39. He says that anyone who has tasted the old doesn't like the new. He's saying the same thing that he said when he was talking about those who are well. He's saying, you like the old ways? You like the old wine? Well, what you're doing in saying that you like the old wine and you don't desire the new is that you're proclaiming that you have no need for Jesus and for my message. You like the old ways. Now, he's not talking about the law, old ways, the law of Moses, because he didn't come to abolish that. He came to fulfill that. He's talking about the old traditions that have been built up over the law. He's talking about the church traditions that aren't necessarily tethered to scripture. They're tethered to preference. And he says, you like, you like that stuff? So, well, the moment Christ starts doing something new that you, you had not anticipated, or with a group of people you don't particularly like, what you're saying is not that you don't like them, you're saying you don't like Jesus because he's the one who's working in their lives. This is a really offensive message. And the question is what is required of us? Well, it requires that we all need a deeper understanding of our real needs. See, this world, it has a sin problem. It doesn't have um, a money problem or a law problem or a race problem. It has a sin problem. That's the problem with this world. The church, it has a sin problem. It doesn't have a color of the carpet problem. It doesn't have a denominational problem. It doesn't have a pastor or an elder problem. It has a sin problem. That's the problem. And the longer we pretend, pretend that the issue is something else, the longer this is gonna go on because we're not getting to the real issue. The problem comes from one, either thinking that we are healthier than we are, or two, that the problem comes from liking old sinful things and not new and glorious things. That's what Jesus is communicating. The problem is sin. But how do we get here? We get here because one, we are convinced that the sin in our life is not as bad as the sin in somebody else's life. Or two, maybe we're fine with the sin, but two, man, I realize that I've got sin in my life, but I, there's no other way to cut it. I, I like the old ways. I like, I like a fight. I like anger. I like getting into people's faces and putting them in their place. I like it. The longer you like that, the longer it's going to take for you to be transformed to the image of Christ. Until you surrender that, things aren't really going to change. The longer you go with your hand on that old net, that old fishing net, the longer it's gonna take you to move forward in your transformation of Christ. But here's the news, whatever the cause, the solution is the same. It doesn't matter if you think you're better off than you actually are, and it doesn't matter if you like the old stuff more than the new. It doesn't matter, the solution is the same. What is the solution I'm talking about? The solution is the solution that the fishermen, Simon, the leper, the paralytic, and Levi all found. Here's the solution, complete and total surrender to Jesus. Now when I say that, I'm not talking about the superficial mixing of Jesus with this world. I'm not talking about the embrace of this 
pseudo-hippie Jesus who just loves everything. I'm not talking about this outward appearance of surrender with no death to your flesh. I'm not talking about an embracing a message or a Christ that these guys followed that is only a man, uh, he, he, just, he just loves everybody and, 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 and he's humble and he's easy to approach. That is true, that is Jesus, but that is not all of Jesus. There's another side of him that we pretend doesn't exist and that's what's gonna split the clouds and come back one day. And that, is, that side of Jesus is the side that brought Peter to his knees and declared, I am a sinner. I am no good at fishing. The thing in life that I thought I was good at, I'm not even good at that. I am so low and broken. And I, and I am so in awe of you. I am awestruck. Where is that sense Where is the sense that when we come together as a people of God, we're not here for a good time. We're here to reverence and be in awe and to sing and to submit to a holy God who is making us his people. Now in my book, that is a good time. But if you show up with the intention that I'm here for a good time, then all of us will just do what you think is a good time. Not what he has decreed is a good time. So I said last week, when we read through a chapter, how do we summarize it? How do we come to a place where we can bring some kind of conclusion? Here's the message from Luke 5 in one sentence. Leave everything, come to Jesus, and he will change your life. That's it, that's the message of Luke 5. And it's told in five different stories. Peter leaves everything because what he sees in Christ is a greater treasure than anything he had on that fishing boat. The leper, he leaves completely transformed. The paralytic, completely transformed. Levi, completely transformed. All the fishermen that were with Peter, completely transformed. That's the message that Luke wants you to see on the surface at the deeper level of meaning and what is required of you. This book is filled with stories of people who were confronted with something that was profoundly better than anything they had ever had in their entire life and what they did with it was they forsook, they let go of, they sold everything so that they could just buy that one treasure in a field. And I I worry that what has been presented to us as the gospel message is just something that doesn't require that much of us. Praise God, he did all the stuff on his side. Man, all we gotta do is just say yes and amen and then go about our lives. That isn't the message. The message is drop those nets, son. Young lady, put down that business. Walk away from that identity. Put it in the ground, bury it, take up your cross, and follow me because where I'm leading you to is infinitely better than anything you could ever do with your life. Amen? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless. 